You have to take care of the poor and the sick. You have to give to those needs. And you have to be faithful in your Bible reading. Now, that's the kind of church we're going to have. You want to be in it, or that's the kind of country. And most students would say, no, if we want that kind of church, what would that produce? It produces the greatest, richest country in the history of the world is what it produced, where the big problem is too many people want to get in, not out. It was based on those. Now, we've gotten very loose, and I'm not sure I want to go back to the pole on the head when you nod off, but those strict teachings guided this nation in its early principles. And hundred years later, in about the 1750s, you know this term called the Great Awakening. Through the colonies, revival swept, led mostly by a man named Jonathan Edwards, very, very strict in his teachings too, but not an unkind man. He eventually became president of uh, Princeton, and by the way, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, all the Ivy League schools were started by Christians, primarily for the teaching of seminary students. And there are long ways from that, I can tell you today. But uh, Jonathan Edwards taught others who spread the gospel into a great revival that swept through the colonies. Eventually, he gave up the presidency of the colonies just so he could go out and live the last few years of his life with Indians who did not know this about the gospel. And he was a home missionary in that sense, lived a very simple meager life to do that. The big scourge at those times was smallpox that would wipe out a whole colony in no time. And a new serum had been developed, but nobody knew what was the right dosage. And they came to the little town of Concord where he was and wanted to try it on some children. And he insisted that they try it on him first, and the dosage was too high, and he died from that. But as a result, many children lived and thousands of people learned of the gospel at this time. From England, you may know the name of Charles and John Wesley, brothers. And they decided, almost like the Puritans, to form what they called a holy club. Anyone here feel like you want to join a holy club? Here's what you got to do. You've got to read your Bible from 30 to 60 minutes per day. You've got to pray for 30 to 60 minutes a day. You've got to be in a church service at least three times a week. You have to spend one night a week helping the poor somewhere on the streets. You have to give a certain amount of money to the blessings of the poor and to meet their needs. And you have to sign a contract swearing you will do this or your own salary will be absconded by the church. Any Holy Club members here want to join up? Well, they increased by 50%. That means they got one more guy. That was George Whitfield. And if you know a little bit about your church history, my guess is you would have a hard time naming any minister of that era except the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield. The Holy Club was ridiculed like the Puritans. People made fun of them because of their Methodist, their methods. And so you know what happened there. That was the beginning of the great Methodist movement that came out of their lives. They came here 
uh, George West uh, Whitfield spent a long time here in America preaching, and Ben Franklin traveled from Philadelphia down to North Carolina to hear him. And he wrote this in his journal. Ben Franklin writing after hearing Whitfield, I perceived that he intended to finish with a collection, and I resolved he was not going to get anything from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper, three or four dollars, and five pieces of gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften a bit and concluded to give him the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and I determined to give him the silver. But he finished in such an admirable way that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collection plate, gold and all. Maybe we'll take another offering when I'm through here, see what happens. But men like Washington and Adams, Madison, knew that their faith in God should have to do with everything they did. And because of that, that really formed the basis of our government. They insisted on Congress being opened with prayer, which is still done. I'm not sure how long that will last, by the way. Uh, they created the position of a chaplain for, con for the Congress. Of course, they believed that religion and government should not be based on each other, but would affect each other. If you're a Christian, it ought to get in your way every day in the way we live. About this time in England, Isaac Watts was writing Amazing Grace. You often think of that as an old American hymn, and it's actually, of course, from England. But a century after Jonathan Edwards' Great Awakening, Christianity was spread among the frontier as people moved west by two methods primarily. One was camp meetings, and one was circuit riders. Camp meetings were just what they sound like, camp meetings, and people would gather at some predetermined location, camping outdoors. Sometimes they were called brush arbors. They would get branches and cover and make little sheds or tents. And uh, various preachers would come and preach all day long, evening. And farmers and workers from the fields would come whenever they could. Some might come and stay a day or two. Some might stay a week. And these would last six, eight, ten weeks at a time. And as in the book of Acts, after these people heard the gospel, of course, they went back to wherever they lived. And they spread the gospel in that way. The other way were the circuit riders who were preachers on horseback who traveled between villages purposely with a little route so that they could teach the people the things of God and listen to them, pray with them, help them in any way they could. These movements were laity-led, not clergy-led, and uh, spread the gospel across America. This was all the, also the time of the Negro spiritual. It was a time of slavery, unfortunately, still. With songs like, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, or Nobody Knows the Trouble I See, or When the Saints Go Marching In, all those old songs came out of this era. By the mid to late 1880s, the great national outreaches by Christian expanded and expanded in four different ways. One was foreign missions. And Bethel is, as long as I've known, has been very involved in foreign missions. 
people like Kerry going to India, Livingston to Africa, others, Hudson going to China. The great foreign missions movement started in those middle to late 1800s and spread the gospel widely. Secondly, social programs that we look at and think of these are good things, they're all started by Christians. Salvation Army, orphanages, Goodwill Industries, St. Vincent de Paul, all of these kinds of orphanages and social programs that we now have, and thousands like them, started because of Christian involvement. When Hurricane Katrina hit in uh, New Orleans, over 8,000 Christian organizations came in to help. Not one atheist organization came in to help, even though they claim to exist and here's our belief, but they never came to help. The third thing that happened at this time, the great social movement, was the anti-slavery movement. Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Brown, people like this, they said, we cannot do this. We cannot continue this. We must stop. And it, of course, led to the bloodiest war in our history. But that came out of the Christian impetus. And fourth, Sunday schools. Started first only for boys, taken off the streets and put into classes to say, maybe we can do something with them to get them cleaned up and on the right direction and later to girls and later to even adults today. The Sunday school movement is not as strong in America as it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but it all started because of Christian laity. In the 1800s, very late and early 20th century, the method of spreading the gospel became mass evangelism. Do you know a name like Dwight Moody? Dwight Moody, who was born, by the way, 100 years to the day before I was. Um, Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday, former baseball player, who had huge campaigns, and then, of course, in your own lifetime, Billy Graham. And they spread the gospel in huge revivals, and that had not been done before to that extent. Moody, Dwight Moody, he liked to begin his sermons by saying, all right, I'm going to preach a two-part sermon today. I'm going to preach to the saints and to the sinners. I'm going to start with the sinners, and so he gives them about 30 minutes of hellfire and brimstone and using the gospel of why you need to repent and why you need to change your ways and what the kingdom of God is all about. And then he would stop and say, all right, that's all I have for the sinners. We're going to wait a minute. All you sinners can get up and leave. And very few wanted to leave at that time. So they stayed around to the last. You don't want to see that. Billy Sunday, when he prayed, he opened his favorite prayer for opening his campaigns was this. Hello, God. How are things in heaven? They're pretty rotten down here. And then he would give them a very animated, um, spectacular-looking sermon. And he was in the big leagues of the baseball world before, so he was accepted for what he was doing. Billy Graham, of course, you know, began with the tent meetings and then the arenas and the coliseums. And some of you, any here? A few of you I know were here when, what was it, 58 or 59 at the coliseum? Uh, no, at the cop house for six or seven weeks. 
later on to the Palestinian Open and in San Jose. But these mass crusades, which now largely are gone because of the use of television and megachurches, but they spread the gospel. In this century or in the last centuries, one just passed two world wars in the first half of that century caused a lot of people to examine their faith and to know, do I put my trust in God or do I not? And they did a lot for us. I remember as a young child, I was four, almost five years old, and my parents had come here from Oklahoma where they lost their farm in the Depression, Dust Bowl. Does this make any sense to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if this is ancient history, but since I remember it, I don't think it is, but I know it is. <laughs> but half a million Americans migrated, most of them to California, looking for work in those times. And uh, until I was eight years old, we lived in uh, tents, which would be in an orchard or a field or wherever you could put it, which is one reason I think I see no romance in camping at all. I don't understand that. I don't it's another word for homeless to me. If you, if you like to camp, quit work. You can camp all year long, it seems to me. But one night, one late afternoon, I remember, and men were calling to each other and, and running together. Come over here. And they grab a peach box and flip it over and sit down. Somebody had a little radio out there. And they were all listening intently. I didn't understand who was talking, but later I would recognize that voice. And it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt announcing that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And suddenly people were very fearful. Uh, we look back at now and say, well, those dangers weren't as real as we thought. Well, we don't know at the time what dangers and they, we really were afraid of invasion. It was a time then of rationing of food, tires, gasoline, uh, blackouts, things like those. But President Roosevelt, around that same time, gave a very famous speech called the Four Freedoms Speech. And he listed four freedoms that should be available for every American. It gave people hope. They didn't know well what's going to happen, but he said, don't be afraid. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. When you think of it, that sentence doesn't make much sense, but at the time, people said, okay, that's good. I guess that encourages us. And his four freedoms, and these have been made into paintings, and there's even in Washington a four freedoms museum for these four freedoms of America. He said all Americans should have, first of all, freedom of speech. That's the right of any valued American. We think, well, yeah, of course we can say what we want. Why wouldn't we do this? At the time he said it, the great nations involved in the war were led by people like Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Tojo. Not one of those was going to give you freedom of speech. That was undeniably American and undeniably because of the Puritan ethic that came down. Speech, where did the speech come from? God himself, how did existence come into being? God didn't take a whole lot of things and say, I'll make them together. Do your homework on the scientists telling you about the big 
bang theory, which fits with Genesis 1, it wasn't that God suddenly made stuff happen. There was no stuff. There was no time. He spoke. That's all. Let there be, and there was. And the freedom of speech is nothing more than us having a tiny bit of God himself placed in us as we're created in his image. He created the world, the universe, just by speaking the word. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the word. You want to know what God looks like, sounds like, talks like? Look at Jesus. And the freedom of speech we have, we have as Christians, is only because we claim to follow a God who is the word himself. Secondly, freedom of worship. I've heard people say, I was here not long, a couple of years ago at some function here at the church, and talking to a lady from a neighborhood I didn't know and I asked do you go to church anywhere you oh no she said I worship God in my own way and I said who do you pay your tithes to and she looked at me like I was nuts or something might be but I said it's wonderful to worship God in your own way you don't have to do anything do you you do whatever you want it is impossible to worship God in your own way worship means to do something in the way that somebody in your pledge of allegiance to wants. Worshiping God in your own way is worshiping self. But that freedom of worship is a recognition. It implies something worthy of worship, our Lord himself. How do we do this? Well, we just, I don't know, eat good thoughts and we sing on a Sunday morning and I guess that's worship. We have a worship service. Here's how St. Paul says we worship him. Romans 12.1 I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. How you live this last week is how you express your freedom of worship. You know that guy who cut you off while you were driving? Your reaction was your spiritual worship. We go through these things every day that test us. Are we really worshiping? Hopefully, we make a little progress, but it is hard. But we worship God. Of course, we do it through prayer and through songs and through unity and through church. Of course, we do. But it carries just as much when you walk out that door as before. Third freedom was freedom from want. Hoover, the president before worship, uh, before Roosevelt, had promised this. What is the end of this? Some of you will know. He says, I'm going to give you two things. A car in every garage and, anyone know? Chicken in every pot. All right, that's all you need. Give me a car, give me something to eat, get out of my way. And we kind of aimed for that and to a large part more than any other country in the history of the world, America achieved that. Again, an outgrowth of the Puritan ethic. And uh, so we look to those, and unfortunately, we've 
gotten probably more cars than we need on the roads. Most people's garages couldn't get a car in it if they wanted to. And our costs are pretty full, it looks like, in most cases. But there is something else that God says, that's not what I'm aiming for with you. Those are blessings of you following. And John Wesley, by the way, used to teach, here's your danger. If you follow the principles of God, you will lead a good life that will lead to prosperity. That very prosperity will tempt you to go away from God. You have more time. You have more money. You can travel further. You can go away on a weekend. And we have to be careful because God says, no, those are not what I mean by want. In Psalm 23, one of the most famous of all the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, not lack, not be without. We are to look for God to fulfill all of our needs. Many years ago, Ruth and I were in a trip and we were in Rome and we were in this little cave, sort of cage or cell where supposedly St. Paul had been imprisoned. Now I doubt if it was that one, but it was no doubt one in that area. And they had electric lights strung through, but of course when St. Paul was there, there was nothing. Maybe he had a candle or a guard would bring a torch, but otherwise you couldn't see a thing in there. It was so uh, cramped, I couldn't stand up full and it was just tiny. It was damp and dank and water dripping on the walls. And from that cell, or one like it, St. Paul had written, I have learned whatsoever state I am in therein to be content. That's pretty hard to do. I don't know what's in your life right now, but you probably don't want to switch it for where he was. But notice he said, I learned. I wasn't born that way. I learned to be content. And it's not easy. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches by the culture. It's hard to remember those things. Sounds like good. Give me those freedoms. But in God, they're ultimately fulfilled. And the last one of his four freedoms was freedom from what? You know? Fear. Freedom from fear. And we were afraid. Uh, the world was on the brink of disaster, and it would, was at that time, in a huge world war. It's interesting to me, it's World War II. We didn't know before that you had to number them. Because the, the first war was never called World War I. When it happened, it was just called the Great War. But once you had another one, you said, oh, to start numbering these things maybe is that where we're going but we're reminded in God's word that God did not give us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind those fears that come and they do come they wash over us but we are not to let them drown us that is exactly when we reach and let God be our rescuer let God be our savior and to lift us up. And he gives us the perfect antidote for fear. In 1 John 4, he says this, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
explicit with respect to the antidote and the best definition of God, God is love. And the fulfillment of those four freedoms were an encouragement to us as Americans during those terrible times. But they're a reminder to Christians that God had already prepared those for us. And we need to be in his word, be in his house, be in his classes and learn of those things that he had for us. Ultimate freedom is freedom from sin and death, not just the things of this world. And he said this, John said, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's another word for salvation, conversion, coming to Christ, following the Lord, whatever term you want to use for it. We need to make those commitments. From the earliest time in our church, in our country's history, people made a commitment to this. And we have uh, weaknesses today, and we say, this isn't like it supposed to be we wanted this but you still need the ideal we still need the lofty goal we still need to reach for those things that we haven't attained whether in this life or in our christian growth we love our country i love our country but it's only a temporal reminder of the freedom you find in christ yes i know i hear well we're, you're we're a nation of immigrants unless you were from iraq Every nation is a nation of immigrants. Where do you think you came from? Oh, I came from Germany or Mexico or Bangladesh. Well, Adam wasn't created in any of those. Somebody migrated there and migrated there and migrated there. And we've done it a little later than some countries, but it's the same process. And for us, we have to be compassionate and understanding and obedient at the same time. Sometimes that's hard to do. But I'm grateful for this country. And you know that no one in here is trying to find a leaky old boat to get out of here. And uh, we're, we're in here together for the long haul. The 4th of July should be celebrated with fireworks. And I thought maybe I would have an open forum on Donald Trump. I thought that'd probably give us all the fireworks we needed right there. But we're not gonna go there, so don't get nervous. But we are going to do this, and I'm going to ask you this. Do you pray for your country? I mean, constantly. If you don't do these things, by the way, make yourself a prayer list so that you remember. Now, I'm going to give you a hard one. When things go wrong, when the president does something you don't like, do you ever repent of his sins? Oh, repent of somebody else's? I I can do to get my own back. But we have to do that. Did you know that? And we're going to do that today. Some of you remember when I was here, I would do this several times on 4th of July week, and that is this. We're going to pray, not just read, though I want you to read with me, but we're going to pray the prayer that Daniel prayed. Daniel, as a young man in Israel, was healthy and strong and just the kind of people that Assyria wanted when they raided the country, and so he was taken, along with many of his friends, to Assyria. And you know his story there, and his three friends, and, and uh, his own story of the uh, lion's den, 
and the others who were almost burned to death and others who were changed their diet to see if they would grow more healthy eating the food of Israel or there. Through all of this, Daniel remained faithful to God. He grew up and was very successful, highly esteemed in the government, did very well. And as an old man, he still was reading in the scriptures. And one day he was reading in the scriptures in the book of Jeremiah. And he realized that Jeremiah had predicted Israel would fall. And it happened when he was just a teenager. And Jeremiah said, you will be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel realized, well, 70 years is coming up right now. If we want, we can go home. And many did. He chose not to because he was an old man, but many of the younger ones did. But his first reaction was, I better pray for this. Now, there's another little truth. You want to get your prayer answered, pray for what God said he's already going to do. Then you always get a yes. See how it works? And you can't go wrong with that prayer. And he said he's going to do enough for you, so pray the right prayers. Daniel began to pray, but the first thing he did was to repent of the sins of his leaders. Yeah, but Daniel, you didn't do that. Yes, I did. It's we. If you're in this country, we are here together. But, but those guys did some, no, we did terrible things. Yeah, but they didn't even, no, we didn't even follow God. But they could have, no, we could have repented. And he put himself with his people. And then he began to pray together for deliverance for his nation and for care and protection for his nation by confessing the sins of his nation. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Some of you remember having done this before. What is going to happen is this. From the ninth chapter of Daniel, on the screen in a few moments will come this prayer. I'm going to read the introduction, which is four verses, I think. And then I want all of you to read out loud, not just read, pray with me together. And we're going to be led by Judy Varder, who are you, dear lady, and her melodious voice. And I worked with this lady for many years, and I love her. She's very good at telling me what to do. So that works very well. But today I, I got to tell her. No, I didn't tell her. I asked her, please, would you lead us in this prayer of Daniel and make it a prayer from our heart to our nation to our God this is what didn't God promise that he's going to take care of us forever well then why don't we pray for him to take care of us forever and then he will and you'll say see and that's the way it's supposed to work yeah but you got it all planned yes he has it all planned and no surprises so let us Stand together. You got a microphone here? We're okay here? And if you would stand together, I am going to read down to the fourth verse, and then would you continue as Judy leads us in prayer this morning. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem 
would last 70 years. This, by the way, is where Daniel is aware of this. And the prayer we're going to pray is word for word. The only thing I've changed is our place names for his, our cities for his. Other word, other than that, every word is from him. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Judy. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not, not listened, listened to your, to your servants, servants, the prophets, the prophets. who spoke, spoke in your name, name to our presidents, presidents, our leaders, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of San Francisco and all America, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our leaders are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have re rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All America has trained the law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Washington. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to the truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of many nations with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from San Francisco, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made San Francisco and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear the name of St. Francis. This time we're going to do our communion, and Lauren is going to lead us. You Thanks may be for coming. Seated. God bless. Hope to see you soon.
Jesus was the one who uh, started the tradition.